You're listening to Kevin Stock Radio. All right, I think we're recording. I got Dr. Paul Saladino on the podcast. We're catching up because we chatted about a year ago on his podcast, Fundamental Health. Uh, and in the last year, there probably hasn't been a more busy human than Dr. Paul Saladino. So you got a podcast. You've been on a tremendous amount of podcasts as well. Uh, recently on TV, which we're going to talk about here, The Doctor's TV, uh, writing a book, which is releasing February 25th, which I want to talk more about as well. Man, so I guess my first question is, I want to know how you did all that, but let's fast forward six months. The book's released. What is the day in life of Dr. Paul Saldino going to look like? Are you going to take a breath? What's going to be up in six months? You know, I think in six months, it's going to be a breath. Thanks for having me on, by the way. It's good to reconnect. I've been kind of fantasizing about that a little bit, and we can talk about what the last year has been like for me. But I hope that in six months, the day looks like I either wake up in Costa Rica on a vacation, or I wake up in Nicaragua, or I wake up in Spain, and I get up and I go surf, and I'm with people I care about, and I'll probably do a little bit of work. But in six months from now, I'm hoping that I can just take a little bit of a break, go in the ocean, go in nature, just be with people, and you know, eat good food, and take a little bit of a respite, and just kind of collect, maybe be in the wilderness somewhere hunting animals that I'm going to eat. So yeah, I think that that's, that's the hope is to get back to a little bit of more of those things. Over the last year, I've done, I've tried to keep healthy. Like, you know, growing up, I saw my dad, who's a physician, and I talk about his story a little bit in the book because it influenced mine, but he, he was an internist or he is an internist and yeah. he, he did not prioritize his health. So throughout all of the last year, I've tried to always prioritize health and diet and sleep and meditation. It's not always worked. Yeah. And as we were talking about before the podcast, humans are human, we're all susceptible to stress. But I, I think that seeing that from my father was a real strong impetus to never let go of those things in myself. So I just want to do more of that in six months. Yeah. So it's interesting. My brother, uh, he's a year older than me. He's an ophthalmologist and, you know, went through medical school residency and his, it's funny cause I was just talking to him last weekend and his, uh, it's not his new year's goal, whatever, but he's, he's, uh, he's trying to lose weight. He's, you know, he's like 30, 40 pounds overweight. And so, you know, even though he is a doctor, he's probably the smartest person I know. He knows it's not healthy, but like you said, like we're human and like things come up. So, uh, yeah, doctors aren't all infallible either. So, <laughs> so. no, and you know, I think it was a, a gift and a blessing to see that illustrated in my father and to think I never want to let go of that. Yeah. But the other thing that we were talking about before the podcast is that it's not normal for humans to have to be attacked every day and when when we are in a position like you and i are where we're trying to share new information on social media which is basically the way to share information now we are going to get criticism and vitriol hurled at us every day and that's been an interesting thing to kind of wrap my head around how do i deal with that how does it mean anything to me i think that we're used to being in a tribal situation and we're used to being with people who will support us and say you know what you're not doing that right change it or we like what you're doing. And right now, the last year has been crazy for me and I'm sure yeah. for you as well. Just so many voices, right? I get hundreds of DMs per week and messages per week from people saying, the carnivore diet is helping me so much. And those are I'm like, great, great. That makes, that makes me so happy that the information I shared is valuable. And then you get the messages from, you know, other people like vegans saying, you're a horrible but human. or hateful. And it's, yeah, hateful messages. Or as we talked about, there are a number of people in all 
ideologies online, um, I, I'm happy to name them, that, are, that just that don't act well online and try to bully you and try to just, there's really a lot of name calling. That's stupid. Yeah. That's idiocracy. You know, I've been called a carnivore clown or a carnivore zealot, you know, by Lane Norton and, and Garth Davis is, you know, a vegan doctor who just uses adjectives like idiotic and stupid with everyone who doesn't agree with his views. And you just right. think, it's like, why do people do that? I don't know why do people, why people stoop to that level. There's a lot of online bullying that goes on. And I think that these other people, and I, I hope I don't fall into that. I try not to, right? I right. try not to participate. But I, I can only imagine that these other people have been bullied or feel marginalized themselves and so need to bully other people. But that's been a stressful thing for me to kind of work with is, man, there's a lot of bullying. It doesn't, hurt, doesn't physically hurt me when Leighton Norton says that carnivore zealot or that carnivore clown. And I respond by saying, hey, Lane, let's do, Lane, let's do another podcast. And he doesn't respond, you know, he's dodging right. me now because we did a debate and, you know, I do the same thing with Garth or any of these other people, but, you know, I think that psychologically it affects us and it's, tough. it's, it's so silly. Well, I empathize because your, your social platform is much larger than mine. And so I, I have like a lot of email connections with people and that tends to be more civilized. Uh, but I empathize because, you know, I get the 10 emails a day saying, how great this is, how it's changed their life. And then you get the one comment, someone saying something negative. And it's, I don't know if it's human nature, but you focus on that one comment and, you're, and it's like, uh, it's something I've battled with, I'd say more last year. And this new year, I've gotten a little bit better. So this is a couple of things I've tried to deal with it. One is to be thankful for the hate. And that is, and it seems like a weird statement, but I realized like if I didn't have any, detractors then i'm probably not saying anything valuable you know because I'm, I'm just in the in the standard echo chamber uh and so the fact that there is haters means like okay maybe i am saying something that's valuable and then the other thing that gives me relief is that uh i don't respond to haters anymore as much as it makes me want to like like get up and fight and you know do you know intellectual battle whatever kind of battle they want <laughs> physical battle intellectual battle but uh there's so many people that reach out to me with valid questions they want help and I don't have enough time to help those people. And so I'm like, you know what? If someone says something bad, it's just one person that I don't have to worry about answering. Yes. <laughs> so those two things have helped me a lot. And so that's something I'm working on. But like, like you, like, it's something I, I have struggled with because, you know, it'll be a roller coaster of emotions if, if I've let all the negativity get in. But you're, you're so right. And I love that reframe. But as humans... We focus on the negative and you want to go after that, right? I don't see the 100 comments that are positive. I see the one negative comment, yep. you know? Yesterday, I posted about my book on Instagram with a video and I said, you know, who's excited about this? And one guy wrote, not me, another meathead book about meat. And I was thinking, <laughs> that's the only comment right. that burned that you in remember. my brain. That I burned in my brain and I thought, what am I going to say to that guy? And I should have just been like, whatever, you know? Like, thanks for your comment. And the other yeah. thing... But of course, I focus on that. And so you're right. I love that reframe and I need to change that uh, in the way that I do things. But I've heard the same thing. Like your enemy is your greatest teacher. So there's something for us to learn from people who are criticizing. And I, I, you know, I've been talking to some plant-based folks about environmental practices now, the savory method and re regenerative agriculture and rotational grazing. And they're, they're fairly civil conversations, but you know, they'll come on my social media and say, that stuff doesn't work. And I'll say, show me the science. But you know, it's, again, right. you focus on the one thing and Hopefully those are productive and I want to hear their critiques. Like what is your issue with regenerative agriculture? And hopefully we'll talk about that on the podcast. Yeah. So. yeah, and so that's one of the things that 
I truly enjoy about your podcast is how you actively go out and you invite people on that disagree with you, the Lane Nortons, whoever, and you invite them onto your podcast to have a civil discussion to learn. Because a podcast like this where you and I probably see eye to eye on 95 plus percent of things, like I'll want to focus on that 5% to see what I can learn from you. Uh, But, you know, that, that brings me to a question that I've been burning to ask you, and that is, of all these guests you've had on your podcast and all the podcasts you've had with people with dissenting opinions, who has been the most convincing argument from a, from a more, I'll just say from more of a plant-based or an anti-carnivore based diet. Is there anyone that's presented an argument to you that's been like, you know what, they did a real good job. It wasn't just an emotional, you know, fight, but they, they presented good logical arguments and, uh, and, and was valid. Was, have you had someone like that that made you really stop and pause? Oh, a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people. And everyone that's coming to my podcast has been civil and non-emotional. It's been great. Right. So I just did a podcast with Chris Kresser and he's awesome. Yeah. And we had a really great civil discussion and kind of point counterpoint. It wasn't as deep as I would have liked to have gone because we had time constraints. I did five hours cumulatively with Chris Masterjohn. So yeah. that, went, that went pretty deep. Um, and then I did about an hour and a half with James Antonio, and we talked a lot about vitamin C and toxins in meat. And yeah, I mean, they, they all make valid points and I love talking about them. And, um, you know, I, I will say that at the end of it all, I, I think that what we were all left with was there are some questions and we don't know either way, right? So I think that the fiber question for me is pretty, pretty clear. I really feel like, and I did a podcast with Lucy Mailing that I'm going to release. I really feel like there's no human need for fiber. And Chris Kresser and I talked about this. Chris Masterjohn and I did not. Um, and, and so the fiber question, I think, is not really a big deal. It, it yeah. appears that I don't think we need fiber for a, quote, healthy microbiome. I've talked about this multiple times that, that the alpha diversity doesn't seem to be affected by fiber. Um, if people want to look at diversity scores in the gut, the removal of fiber doesn't lower alpha diversity. The inclusion of fiber doesn't raise alpha diversity. Right. I think we've got alpha diversity all wrong. And, and I talked about this in, in decent detail with Chris Kresser. In terms of nutrients, that was more of the conversation I had with Chris Masterjohn. Yeah. You know, that was the first Chris Masterjohn. At the end of that, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to speak for Chris, but I can't say that I really believe there are nutrient deficiencies on a nose-to-tail carnivore diet. I'm not an advocate for a meat-based uh, carnivore diet. Like, a, like a muscle meat-based. Yeah, like a muscle meat-based carnivore diet. Right. I, I think that if we, um, like, if, if we look at the organ meats, whether it's liver, spleen, pancreas, heart, kidney, bone marrow, bone broth, bones themselves, bone meal, yep. we can really put all of the nutrients that, that we believe from a 2020 nutritional perspective that humans need. Um, how much of those nutritional requirements change in the absence of glucose or in the presence of ketosis is questionable, but right. you, can meet, <clears throat> you, can eat, you can meet the recommended daily allowances for every single vitamin and mineral every day eating a nose-to-tail carnivore diet. And that includes vitamin C, and I talked about that in detail with both Chris and James Antonio. And so then there's the subsequent rabbit hole of vitamin C, which I think I talked a little bit more with James about. And that's, that's an ongoing question. I think that um, the, the more I read about it, I'm, I'm just not convinced that there's good evidence, and I would be curious what you've seen here, that more than 50 to 70 milligrams of vitamin C is beneficial in humans. And I think there's some suggestion that it could be harmful uh, because- I'm more in that camp because it takes the place of other things like uric acid. 
Well, right. Is it going to take the place of uric acid? I'd love to dig into that with you. Or is it going to break down into oxalate? Um, there, right, are, exactly. there, are, there are anecdotal reports of people getting oxalate kidney stones after supplementing with megadoses of vitamin C because, you know, Chris Masterjohn and James DeNicol Antonio would be of the opinion that more is better, that you want to saturate all the cells in your blood. And the, my, my problem is that the curves that were done for saturation of the neutrophils, the monocytes, um, uh, in the blood were probably done on people that were insulin resistant. That's a, we don't, we don't red have to do with vitamin C and diabetics and how it helps because they are, because they have so much glucose in the blood that they're not, they're in, they're basically deficient in vitamin C. And so well, I don't, yeah. might be helpful. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's an article that I talked about in my newsletter a few weeks ago showing that for any given vitamin C dose, diabetics take up less. Right. And, and I don't know if I am convinced of the glucose ascorbate antagonism theory per se. Right. I think it, it may have something else to do with, you know, rather than sharing different transporters. But there, there is evidence that in people who are insulin resistant, a given dose of vitamin C appears to change levels in the blood um, in, in a lesser fashion. So if we're doing studies of saturation curves of monocytes or whatever cell we're looking at with vitamin C doses, and they're done in people who are insulin resistant, is it possible that those could be different in people who are not insulin resistant or who are in, in ketosis? And so that's, that's the question because ultimately if we move further down the vitamin C rabbit hole, and I talked about this with Chris, Master John, what is the point of vitamin C? Well, it probably regenerates glutathione and regenerates vitamin E in the membrane. It's in the aqueous layer of a cell. It's going to regenerate glutathione. So, you know, it, we, we can easily measure um, we can easily measure vitamin E. We don't have a great test that I'm aware of to measure oxidized versus reduced vitamin E, but yes. presumably, if, presumably if vitamin E is getting oxidized in the membrane, we would see increased lipid peroxides. Right. So I said to Chris, Master John, well, if I'm not getting enough vitamin C, then why are my lipid peroxides low? Let's take my lipid peroxides, which you can measure with Genova, and compare it to yours. And so, and, or we could check my 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is a measure of DNA damage. So we have there are reasonable lab metrics that I have checked that, that we can check to reflect antioxidant status at any given vitamin C dose. So, you know, there's, there's lots of ways to look at this and, you know, we're all kind of left scratching our heads, but I'm, I'm not convinced that we need 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day or even 200 milligrams of vitamin C a day. And then the flip side of that I talked about with James DeNicol Antonio, which is, is more harmful because if people are getting 300 milligrams of vitamin C, they're probably not getting it from food unless they're eating four oranges a day, which some people might do. But <laughs> I, I think most of the population, if they're getting that much vitamin C, is getting it from a supplement. Exactly. And could it, could it be problematic? You know, could, it, could it be breaking down into oxalate? Could it be increasing oxalate deposition in the human body? We don't know. So uh, there, I think that's an important conversation about vitamin C. Everyone loves to talk about that. And you know, I, I talk about another study in one of my previous newsletters where people increase the amount of vitamin C in their diet from 70 seven zero milligrams to 270 milligrams. Serum levels of vitamin C went up 30%, but markers of oxidative stress didn't change at all. So you think, well, that's excreted. It's either excreted or the, the cells were already saturated right. or, you know, that's, that's the ultimate thing. Like vitamin C is, you don't, you don't want vitamins. You don't want any mineral for the sake or vitamin for the sake of that mineral. You want it because it does things in the human body. Right. And, and if, if we can use the best methods we have to look at what vitamin C is doing, and they all look the same or equivalent with 50 versus 200, I'm not convinced that's a problem. So all of those were kind of fun conversations. That, and that's interesting. I think for a lot of water-soluble vitamins like vitamin C, people are less worried. Probably the pushback that you have in some of these conversations is 
you know, a little extra is safer than not enough because you'll just pee it out or whatever. Uh, however, would you say, a question I was going to ask you, so just a meat, muscle meat-based diet mainly, carnivore style, is vitamin C deficiency the number one risk factor or is there other nutrients that you'd be, be more afraid of being uh, deficient in? It's hard to rank them, but I do think of multiple nutrients that could be deficient on a, on a muscle meat-based carnivore diet. Um, vitamin C would be one. And, and I think that if we are, I mean, there is vitamin C in muscle meat. The, the statistics I've seen or the numbers I've seen when it's tested are between 17, 15, and 17 milligrams per pound. And people might say, oh, that's not a lot of vitamin C. And I think, well, again, how much does a human need? Exactly. Um, uh, it's probably enough. To, it's certainly enough to prevent scurvy if we're not overcooking the meat. Now, I do think that a human could get scurvy on a carnivore diet if they were eating spam or if they were eating overcooked hamburger all the time. If you're just eating ground beef every day, all day, uh, that, there's a concern for scurvy there for me. You know, like, well, my, and what my concern is uh, from a lot of the carnivores that you know, I've interacted with, a lot of them are like 90 to 95%. And you said that's great as long as that 10% isn't cake. But a lot of people will say they eat like meat and sweets, quote unquote, and not sweets as in like fruit, but like as in dessert. And I'm like, I, I think you do put yourself at risk for some issues if you, if you take that path. I do. I do think that. And I think the way you're cooking the meat matters. Like I said, if you overcook the meat, this is how sailors get scurvy. We know that if you dehydrate the meat, if you preserve the meat, if you put it in salt, you can denature ascorbic acid in meat. Um, if you're eating meat that's medium rare or a steak or hamburger that's not, you know, not quite overcooked, you're going to get some vitamin C in that meat and you'll be okay. But this is where the carnivore diet gets a bad rap. Everyone thinks it's just ribeyes, ribeyes, ribeyes. And I think, well, we have to be a little bit more intentional, like we should be with any diet. And the, the way you're cooking the meat matters and the sources of nutrients matter, which is why for me, <clears throat> getting some organ meats is important and maybe even getting organ meats that are not overcooked, right? Not overcooking your steak, not overcooking your organ meats and thinking about that. And of course, everyone in the carnivore community needs to be aware of the symptoms of scurvy, right? Bleeding gums, petechiae, right. you know, weird symptoms and say, you know, am I doing this correctly? Because I think right now, though I'm glad that people are finding improvements from autoimmune disease, if someone is just eating hamburger patties and bacon all day, that's not my opinion of a good way to construct the diet. And beyond vitamin C, I worry about folate. I mean, I've seen this in multiple people. I've seen serum folate levels that are low. And the contrary argument from those in the space would be, is that clinically relevant? To which I would respond, yes, it is, because we can look at homocysteine or we can look at other things in the blood to give a sense of that, the biological activity of that vitamin deficiency. Of course, the ranges for folate are a Gaussian distribution and they're based <laughs> on the population. So I can't just look at a serum folate level and say the low is bad, but if I can see other things that folate is doing biochemically, like participating in the reaction with MTHFR right. to convert homocysteine to methionine, and they have high methionine or they have high homocysteine, I think, yes, that is a valid thing. And so I worry about that. I worry about riboflavin. And I do see homocysteines that are high quite often in, in my clients and when they're not eating enough organ meats, because I think it's probably a combination of folate deficiency and riboflavin deficiency. So it's, I'm trying to triangulate it here, but um, I do worry about those things. Beyond that, there's biotin. Um, is the zinc copper balance proper? Is there a calcium deficiency? How do we measure that? Right? So there, there are numerous things that I think about, at least just to advance the conversation. It, it's, and it's, these are like one of the good questions because I asked on social media before this, I was like, what, what, what questions do you want me to ask Paul? And someone said, well, what, what do you think 
in 20 years we look back on all these carnivores doing this carnivore diet, what's something that we might be like, oh, we, I wish we would have known that back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of these might be some of those, some of these concerns might be something we look back on 20 years and say, you know what, we needed more folate or we needed more vitamin C. Uh, so I know, I'm going to say like my first year of eating just, just meat, it's almost been three years now, but the first year I mainly, I didn't do any nose to tail, basically just meat, uh, muscle meat mainly. And my labs did come back pretty much fine as far as homocysteine and, and like my calcium was even like high. Uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't having like any dairy or anything like that. So I, I wonder if things are individual or, you know, I, I, I think there's just a lot that I don't know in that area. Can I, can I ask you a little bit more? Do you know what your homocysteine was? I could, I could pull it up. I mean, it was a couple of years ago. So. Right. So just to clarify for people, the reference range for homocysteine is uh, not what I would consider or many would consider to be ideal. I don't know what your number was, but I like to see homocysteine below eight, preferably at seven. So okay. a homocysteine of nine or 10 or 11 is still technically within the reference range, but I think it's too high for humans. And um, I think there's some good studies to suggest that. So it could be within the reference range. So I would just make sure that your homocysteine was seven or eight. Yeah. And, and perhaps for people who um, you, if you are eating more meat, right? If you are a bigger person, you may get more riboflavin because you are eating more meat. Yeah. A smaller woman, a smaller man is not getting as many calories. That's They're not getting point. as much meat. They may not get as many of those things. So I do think there are multiple things to check there. The other thing I would say to people about calcium is that you know this, serum calcium is not a good measure of calcium status. Sure. And, and I don't, there is no great way to look at this. You could get an ionized calcium. You could look at NT lipeptide, which is a, a a marker of bone breakdown or bone turnover. Um, you could get a DEXA scan and just check the bone density moving exactly. forward because yeah. really what we're worried about with calcium is, is not necessarily calcium deficiency in the short term, but an, an imbalance between acid and base in the diet. And we can go into more detail here, but there are alkalizing minerals that we are eating and that are present on a carnivore diet um, that probably should balance the, um, the acidic moieties from proteins, amino acids, specifically sulfur-containing amino acids. So, you know, the alkalizing minerals are magnesium, potassium, calcium, for the most part. Um, there are a few others, but those are the ones we need to think about. Well, meat has a decent amount of potassium. We know that. I don't think any food on the planet has really a good amount of magnesium. It's probably something we obtain from water. Yeah. But I think that I do think that calcium is something that we should at least consider on a carnivore diet. In in circles that are looking at animals in zoos, they do think about calcium to phosphorus ratios in the diet. But <clears throat> we've never really thought about that in humans. There are articles, I mean, people don't really talk about this much anymore, but there are articles from the 50s and 60s where people suggest that a one-to-one ratio or even more calcium than phosphorus is probably ideal for humans. And again, it's this kind of thing that we're trying to think about and, and, yeah. and understand. And so just eating muscle meat, the calcium to phosphorus ratio is going to be quite low um, because there's going to be lots of phosphorus in the meat and almost no calcium there. So that's what I've been kind of experimenting with. Can I make a bone broth that has more calcium and then bone meal? If I can get good bones from farms that I trust, I'll, I'll just end up kind of crunching the bone, like a small bone. People, m- m- that may sound uh, unusual to people, but if they've ever eaten a chicken or a turkey, um, uh, you know, if, if someone's ever eaten chicken or turkey, they'll know that the small bones on the ends are quite edible. And I think that there are plenty of examples of indigenous peoples doing that. So it's interesting stuff. That is interesting. So uh, let's, I, while we're talking about nutrients, 
let's, we maybe shift from micronutrients to macronutrients because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you do recommend more ketogenic ratios, like you know, 70, 30 or 80, 20, even fat to protein. You know, um, I'm, it's an evolving thing, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an evolving thing. I actually don't, I, I think that I've kind of softened on that a little bit. I, I experimented with that and this is what's so humbling, right? Is that, that we always, we always learn yep. uh, and people can use it for what they want. You know, the more I looked at athletic performance and studies like the faster study, which was low carb, high fat athletes uh, versus high carb athletes in performance, which is an endurance event and some intense events. And they looked at glycogen storage and repletion and they found that these athletes had equivalent amounts of glycogen storage and repletion. And the low carb athletes were eating 2.1 grams of carb, 2.1 grams of protein per kilogram. So they were basically eating one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Now, listeners, this always gets confusing for people. So I'll just clarify a pound of meat is 454 grams, but in 454 grams of meat, there are only 100 grams of protein. Yep. So I've, I think that what I trend toward, and this is interesting because it's probably something like what you do and what Sean does is about one-to-one fat to protein. Um, I don't know what you're doing, so I can't assume that, but that, that ends up to be about 70-30. 70-30. I'm actually, I actually, my personal is skewed just a little bit more towards protein than that. Interesting. So what are you? You think 65, 35? Probably 60, 40 most days. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's just a ballpark because I'm not measuring it. I'm not doing anything like that. But right. uh, from doing this for a few years, I now have a pretty good feel. And mostly it's just for, you know, vanity body composition reasons. I, 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 I'm able to build more muscle, like I'd say uh, statistically significant and stay leaner if I skew that ratio a little bit, because I think it just, it's an impact on my natural appetite. appetite. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I've found fat to be quite satiating and protein to be the reverse that, that the, if I don't get enough fat, I'm not full. So I you'll overeat. Well, not <laughs> that I'll overeat, just that I'll end up eating more protein. And it's right. like, does my body use it? And so I think this is actually something that I would love for you to measure because there's a nuance here, right? The difference between 70, 30 and 60, 40, I think is a big deal. A lot of people in the space would suggest that 40% of the calories from protein is the upper limit for humans. So yeah, I think I would, we need to know. I that. should because I actually, you know, for long periods of time, I would do 50-50. I would do 60-40 protein to fat. I, and and I've, I've, I've read these studies and I've seen these talks about the upper limits of protein. And I don't want to say I just like turn a blind eye to it, but I... I surpassed the human limits of how much protein one should eat uh, or, or, is, or is capable of eating. And so I'm like, well, look, I'm not an anomaly in any sense. Like I'm more average than average Joe himself, like yeah. across the board and everything. Right. Uh, so, and it might be because I've eaten such a high protein diet for such a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, maybe just something I would be more calculating with. So just so I can like present my own N equal one, you know, very high protein. <laughs> yeah, I know. It would be fascinating. And I would love to see an ammonia level, you know, like a blood ammonia yeah, level. Yeah. I talked about this in a debate I did with Ted Naiman. I do think there's individual variation in the ability of the liver to do the urea cycle. Right. And some people can do the urea cycle better than others. Some people can convert protein, amino acids into urea better than others. And I do believe that there is a physiologic threshold, which is individual per human. And some people are going to be able to convert less, right? And if you hit your physiologic threshold of protein, then the concern, 
the concern is that you're going to spill over with ammonia. And so you right. wouldn't want, you would not want to see that in the blood. I mean, I think that if someone has fat, they want to lose, you can do rabbit starvation, which is essentially a protein sparing, protein sparing modified fast, modified yeah. fast right? Exactly. It's, it's 200 to 300 grams of protein a day, probably 200 grams of protein a day or more with very little fat, very little carbohydrates. And that's, that's a protein sparing. Now we know uh, that's not good long-term, right? No, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, so, you're going to feel bad. So can you go ahead for, for people to kind of define rabbit starvation? Because I get a lot of questions about this. Uh, so if you can just clarify. That, I think that's what we're talking about here. Rabbit starvation, in my view, is when someone exceeds or tickles the edge of how, much, how many calories or exceeds the amount of calories they can get from protein and still run normal human metabolism. So it's, it's, it's ammonia spillover. It's, it's just, it's all protein, not enough fat or carbohydrates. So, you know, you see people, you see explorers doing this. They can only get, and this is actually fascinating anthropologically, explorers can only get lean animals. They can only get mice or rats or squirrels right. in the Arctic. They're, and if they don't have carbohydrates or fat, those are the key nutrients, right? And it works. Human metabolism works if you have one or the other or both. But if you don't have either of those, rabbit starvation is the human body cannot run or does not appear to be able to run exclusively on protein for long amounts of time, right? That is rabbit starvation. Is it because of too much protein or not enough fat and carbohydrate? Or is it the unique combination of those two things together? I because think that it's not enough carbohydrate and fat. Okay. Right? So not and, too I, much protein. It, well, that's the question is on a protein sparing modified fast, if you, I think that there are two different things we're talking about here. I think if you exceed your liver's ability to do um, the mean you know, conversion of urea to urea, then you will get ammonia spillover. And that's not a good thing. So that's the question is what if, um, what if a human were to do uh, protein sparing modified fast or just to try and eat 500 grams of protein per day like would you start to see ammonia buildup right Th at that point you can pretty clearly say that's probably not benefiting someone from a muscle building standpoint and the, the appearance of ammonia most people would agree is probably a bad thing metabolically is it going to the brain etc so i think that th those are the two questions right the rabbit starvation i think technically is the absence of fat and carbohydrates. Because you could, you could rabbit starve on you know, a smaller amount of protein. And then there's the question, can you exceed the amount of protein in your diet that the liver can actually transform into urea? And that's gonna be problematic. They can exist simultaneously and sometimes do. But I think that these explorers in the Arctic we're probably not getting 400 grams of protein a day. That would be, you know, four pounds of meat a day. Right. These guys are not, I don't, I don't, maybe, I mean, if they kill a caribou, maybe they are eating four pounds of meat a day and trying to eat that much. But um, I think that it, the rabbit starvation technically is the absence of carbohydrates and fat. And what we know is that your body will then, uh, you know, change the physiology. I think hormones will shift in a negative way temporarily. I would imagine thyroid will change, uh, testosterone, sex hormones will change, and the body will burn fat and you will lean out. But as we know, with bodybuilding competitors and figure competitors, you can cross a threshold where things really start to tank and become very hormonally and metabolically unhealthy with that. But I do wonder, you know, what is the upper end of protein for people? And I would love to know what your macros are now, you know, at like two that like really clearly. When you know I've I think you know, I'll, I'll track them more closely. Yeah, yeah. Just, it would just be interesting. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I think you're probably right. I believe you that you, you know what your macros are, but the difference between 60, 40 and 70, 30 would be a big deal or between 55, 45, that would be like, wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot of protein. Because it's not uncommon for me to go multiple days, like sirloin tip roast, just cause they're a good deal. The grocery store I have them carries them, you know, good price or I'll eat just sirloin tip roast for a week. 
and I'll eat three and a half pounds a day at least. And they're relatively lean and I feel totally fine. Like, wow. like, wow. and so I, I mean, that's like that's 350, four, 350 plus grams of protein, you know, probably under a hundred, under hundred grams of fat. So, I mean, yeah, I'm just ballparking numbers there, but that's not untypical. It's that's not like a, a crazy, I mean, I just took a picture before this and put it on social media. It was, it was an example of one of my sirloin tip roast, <laughs> which I cook like a steak and I eat very rare, but, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, so. Well, you won't get scurvy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you won't get scurvy, but that's actually something important to, to talk about with people. I do think it would be possible for someone to get scurvy on a carnivore diet if they were only eating roast that they cooked in a crock pot. You know, if you pressure cook all your meat, yeah. how much vitamin C remains? Like that's probably not a good, you know, that could be a problem. So it's, yeah. it's one of those interesting things where I've noticed with a lot of people, and I think it's true of me when I first started, you know, and I, maybe it's semi-culturally, like my meat, I would cook medium probably. And then a few months in, I started eating more rare, more, more, more rare, more rare, more rare. And it might be because it's like the body naturally, because I, I preferred it that way, but maybe the body's like, hey, there's some nutrients that I need to get in the rare meat. Uh-huh. Uh, so maybe that's why that preference developed, something like that. Uh, at least it's yeah, a, a strange hypothesis. You know what would be fascinating would be to track, to do your blood work and to watch you know, your BUN, to watch ammonia, because you can get a serum ammonia, yep. to watch a serum ammonia level as you're doing like super, super high protein and just say like, oh, it's not changing. And be like, oh, maybe Kevin has a really high threshold for the ability to turn um, you know, amino acids into urea. And then to watch your body composition and say, I mean, I would imagine, I can only imagine that doing that, you are going to lean out like fast. And that that's probably um, maybe not a I would also love to see hormones like cortisol, testosterone, thyroid. Like how is it all changing as you're doing that? Maybe it's not going to change negatively, but my concern would be that it might. Yeah, and, you know, for, for the short term, yeah, you might be able to do it, but how long can you sustain it? And is it, is it the right trajectory to take, right? Would you be better off with more fat? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. A lot, of the, a lot of this is I feel great when I eat closer to the one-to-one, uh, 70-30 protein to fat. Uh, and so then it comes to be like, well – you're going to sacrifice some feeling good and potentially some help to, you know, get low single digit body fat or something like that. Uh, and so then you start making balances that are not necessarily, you know, the health healthiest choices. Uh, but, but people do want that. Like uh, many people contact me because that's what they want. They're like, look, I want to feel good, whatever, but this body composition goal is number one. <laughs> and, and I think this is an important conversation that people want to lose weight. How do we help people lose weight? Is it protein sparing modified fast? Or can it be done with a higher fat carnivore diet, like a one-to-one carnivore diet? My suspicion is that it can be done with a one-to-one carnivore diet because it's so satiating. And again, this was part of the conversation I had with Ted Naiman uh, previously was, you know, if you look at, though we can't measure incretin hormones or these sort of hormones that have to do with our satiety response in real time, you know, there is some evidence that fat is more satiating than protein. And that to me, that's what, that's been what I have noticed that when I am doing higher fat, I am so much less hungry. Yeah. And of course, fat has more calories per gram than, um, than meat. And, but I mean, I'm not, I don't want people to get too low on their, on their protein, because I think that this is the problem with traditional ketogenic diets is that people will not eat enough protein. They will not eat one to one grams. So they will not eat one gram a protein per pound of body weight. And if, I think if we do not do that, 
and the glycogen stores on our muscles are not full, we may end up with poor athletic performance, which is not something we want. Now, I think this is why ketogenic diets work for people to lose weight. Fat is so satiating. They're just guzzling fat, right? They're doing 90-10 or 85-15, yep. and they're just not that hungry. They, don't, they can go a whole day. They're just burning fat like crazy. I don't want them to lose muscle mass, and I want them to have performance in the gym. So this is a fascinating little lever, right? If we're just looking at two macronutrients, yeah, I mean, you know, keto, you know, people who are keto might have a small amount of carbohydrates. If we're just moving the lever, you know, the slide rule between fat and, and protein, it's like, where do we, you know, what's the ideal thing? And how do we, how do we do this? And like you're suggesting, I think if people really watched their testosterone, cortisol, thyroid, pushing into the low single digits, or probably, I mean, I'd be curious what your number is. I would guess, you know, sub eight, sub seven, I think you're going to see some things go negatively, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't disagree with that. Uh, but one of the for things men. that, one for of the men, things, seven to 8%. Yeah, men. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think has some validity is this protein leverage hypothesis where if you're not at least reaching your baseline need of protein, you're going to overeat. And so I think even with the ketogenic diet, if you're, if you're getting one gram of protein per pound of body weight, you're meeting your, your, you're basically, I'll call your protein floor. But I think for people that don't eat that protein floor, they're going to be super hungry. And I think they have the potential to even overeat fat. I'm not sure that's 100% uh, you know, true for everyone. But for myself, I know if I eat, I, I experienced this when I did a ketogenic diet uh, quite a while ago. I really, my goal was really to push ketones to see if that made a difference on mental performance. So that was kind of my goal. And I, I did limit protein to about 0.75 grams per pound of body weight. Uh, and uh, I lost a lot of muscle. I lost a lot of muscle and I was ravenously hungry, uh, ate a ton of fat. And I was like, I could be chugging MCT oil and then nothing was satisfying me. So I, I think there is a, a, at least, a, at least a, surely a minimum of protein and a minimum of fat. But if you don't reach those, then either way you're going to be your, your appetite's going to suffer negatively. And I think this is a fascinating question. What is the sweet spot for protein? You know, how much protein do you need to really maximize muscle growth? And what happens when you exceed that? Right. And that may be higher than I imagine. I kind of set it one, 1.1, 1. 1, 1. 1.2. Like I set it like 1.4, 1.5. Wow. So it's a little higher. Well, that's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that has higher. been like my number that it, it's more than I think you need based on the research I've read. But it's also, it's just, to me, it's like on the safe side. Safe side, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm 170 pounds, 174, 175. So to be fair, there are days that I eat 200 grams of protein. Right. But I, I, physiologically, I would love to look at nitrogen balance. That would probably be the metric, right? Yeah, absolutely. And say, at what point does this happen for you? Where do you get negative nitrogen balance and where do you get positive? And what's the switch? You know, Is it 1.2? Is it 1.3? Is it 1.1? Because... Um, and, and then the question is, you know, is there a benefit to eating more protein beyond that or does it harm us? And is there a satiety mechanism? For me, it seems that when I'm eating one-to-one -one fat to protein, you know, 170-ish grams of protein, maybe 200 grams of protein on a big day is pretty satiating and I don't, it's hard to eat more than that. Um, but, you know, it would be a lot of meat for me personally to eat three pounds a day, but I could do it if I lowered the fat. And the question is whether the question is whether it would be beneficial. Yeah. So your typical day, do you have a typical day? 
Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, interestingly, at the beginning of the carnivore diet, when I was doing it, you know, a year and a half ago, I was eating three to four pounds of muscle meat a day. Yeah. And my body comp has pretty much stayed the same. I've been like right at 170 the whole time. And I haven't had a lot of fluctuations. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. (laughs) But when I was eating, like, I I just, I guess, you know, and maybe I wasn't weight training enough, uh, you know, to, to grow more muscle, but I don't, weight training is not what I enjoy doing. So yeah. like it wasn't, um, I'm, I'm reasonably muscular. You're super lean. Yeah. I think probably genetically I'm pretty lean. I feel like if I eat 70, 30, uh, protein fat or fat to protein, uh, my body will settle in at a higher body fat percentage than you currently have. Interesting. But I, I'm sure there's variability there, but I, yeah. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I mean, so like Sean Baker puts up, you know, some photos without a shirt quite frequently. And, you know, he doesn't watch his macros at all. He eats ribeye steaks. Uh, and I, I don't know, he sits around probably 12 to 15% body fat. It's what it looks mm-hmm. like just visually. I'm not, I don't know what for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, I feel like that's probably, I would settle in closer to the 12 to 13, not the eight to nine. You look like you're under 10. Maybe. At least in some of the pictures I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I think I'm right around 10 or under 10. 10 yeah. There's yeah. not, a, and I haven't gotten a DEXA. I want to because I challenged Garth Davis to compare my visceral adipose tissue to his. <laughs> okay. I think, well, I think, I think that, you got that one one. <laughs> I know. Well, I think that this is more, I think this is more like there's, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, these friendly debates. I feel like these friendly debates should be accompanied by some sort of like meaningful metric. Like yeah. show me your CRP, show me your fasting insulin, but actually I think show me your visceral adipose tissue. And so, you know, Garth Davis is going to lose that. Like you're telling me a plant-based diet is better and your visceral adipose tissue is, is more than mine. So we're not even having this conversation. Like you're, you're fatter than me, man. You know, like, yeah. you're, you're, it's just, and the same thing, like Kevin Bass on Twitter, you know, you want to argue with me, show me your VAT. I'm not going to, maybe, I mean, it would be reasonable to say, I'm not going to engage with anyone whose visceral adipose tissue is more than a few percentages than mine, because otherwise, why do we even care? Like, right. you're not, you're either not living what you're saying you're doing or what you're doing doesn't work. So why do I, why does anyone want to hear what you have to say? Because, you know, show me your visceral adipose tissue. Show me that fat that is within the peritoneum that we know for the majority of people is indicative of insulin resistance and, and negative things. I think we should make this a hashtag, like show me your VAT. I want you to spread this. I want everybody to push for this. <laughs> yes. Because I think it would end a lot of things like, <clears throat> you know. Look, yeah, if you're not practicing what you preach or if you are practicing what you preach and it's not working, well, guess what? Then we don't really want to hear from you. <laughs> Why do we care? <laughs> yeah, or, exactly. or that's going to be the framing of the entire conversation. You know, Kevin Bass reached out to me on Twitter. He's like, come on my podcast, debate me and Avi. And I was like, fine. And now I'm going to say back to him, like, show me your VAT. The whole conversation is framed what is your visceral adipose tissue? And if I could ever get Lane Norton to stop dodging me again, I would say the same thing. He's looking kind of heavy. The last picture I saw. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> show me, like, and I love it. It's like you're either not you're not practicing what you what preach, you, or what you preach doesn't work. So it, that's exactly it. So either one, it's like proof's in the pudding. So this this is what we were talking about before we started the podcast. Is and I think let's talk about the doctor show a little bit because I watched it and you know what caught me trigger and I was very impressed by like just how calm and cool you stayed uh, but this this lawyer who looks pre pre-diabetic you know she's overweight if not clinically obese probably has hyperinsulinemia uh is asking you where you got your credentials to tell people how to eat and the whole time I'm thinking I was like Paul please ask her like who are you who's giving you advice and you should if you're a lawyer you should sue them 
Because like you are in the highest risk category for, you know, all the chronic diseases of modern civilization, heart disease, cancer, dementia, like you are in that high risk category. You should be angry at them, not Paul. Like you should be listening. (laughs) Well, and so if people aren't familiar with this, I posted a response video on my YouTube channel and there are a number of snippets of it on my Instagram, which is CarnivoreMD. My YouTube is Paul Saladino MD. They can go to those places and watch, but there's a part in the episode where a lawyer is literally screaming at me saying, where did you get your credentials? What makes you an expert? And the whole conversation is completely absurd. And we talked about this before the podcast. What makes an expert, right? I would consider Rob Wolf to be pretty smart. Me too, absolutely. He doesn't have an MD, you know, like he has a master's degree. Uh, You know, Chris Kresser, licensed acupuncturist, master's degree, contributed a lot, right? And Dave Feldman on your podcast, he's a computer scientist. Dave Feldman is an engineer. Yeah, our engineer. Yeah, I trust his opinion on, you know, LDL more than most cardiologists. Right, right. (laughs) But what they were trying to do was say, you're a psychiatrist. Right. Which is the, the, the connected inference is that in a different residency, other people get more nutritional training, which is false. You know... You're a, you're a dentist, but I know you know this, right? Like there's no nutrition training in dental school. No besides nut- like sugar causes cavities. We know that. Right. Okay. Move on. Next subject. But yeah, yeah, basically. There's very little nutrition training in any medical school. There's very little nutrition training in any residency. I don't care if it's Garth Davis's surgery residency, Travis Stork, who's another guy on the show, did an ER residency. Melina Jampolis did an internal medicine residency. I mean- None of those people got nutrition training in residency. And the whole argument is flawed because if they did get nutrition training, why do we care? Because mainstream nutrition training is causing people exactly. to become fat and sick, right? I think that's the biggest point. Like if you're repeating the echo chamber that got us in this mess in the first place, you're part of the problem. You're not part right. of the solution. <laughs> right. And so it's like, look, you know, I went to medical school. I completed a residency. I'm board certified. I did training in functional medicine. I've done as many certifications as I possibly can, I've spent hundreds or thousands of hours, you know, hundreds or thousands of hours reading nutrition. I wrote a book, right. you know, uh, and, and they're saying, you're not valid. You're not, you're not qualified to talk about this. And Garth Davis loves to say this on Instagram too. This guy's an unqualified psychiatrist. And so I, I kind of bristle and I think, are you saying that nutrition doesn't have anything to do with depression, anxiety, or mental Your health? Your response was perfect. Like you can't treat individual organs separately from the rest of the body. Like, unless you're saying, oh, my food that I eat is not affecting my brain. Okay, well, then you're naive because it 100% is. It's not affecting my joints. It's not affecting whatever system that, I mean, it's impacting your whole body. So like your response is perfect. What makes makes Garth Davis qualified to talk about nutrition? Because you did a surgery residency? Like, you know, I could have done a surgery residency. Like, what, what makes you qualified? Did you learn nutrition in your surgery residency? Now he's saying, oh, I do... I do uh, obesity medicine, which means he see, I don't think he even does surgery anymore. He just sees patients and, you know, helps them lose weight by starving them with a vegan diet. Well, great. Like, does that make you more qualified than me? I, it, to me, this is so deeply disrespectful and so, yeah, deeply me too. Flawed, so deeply flawed. And you bring up this great point, which I'll highlight for people. And this is what I said on the doctors. The, the separation of humans into organ systems doesn't serve the patient. That is a flawed modality. Everything is connected in the human body. And on the doctors, I said, where do you think the inflammation in the brain comes from? And she said, you treat the mind. And I said, what, what, what are you talking about? Like, are, is this 1930? Yeah. Do you believe that the mind exists in a, <clears throat> does the mind exist in a bubble? Is the mind not influenced by the gut? Where does the inflammation in the brain come from? It comes from the body. So no, no physician 
is more qualified than another physician to talk about nutrition. That's just an absurd, absurd argument. And I, I, you know, I didn't get in all of the licks that I wanted to during that episode. I didn't have all the, the, you know, the quick and clever comebacks. But one thing I did say, which I think was good was, she said, you practice psychiatry. And I said, I practice medicine. Yeah. Right. And she said, you practice psychiatry. I practice medicine. She repeated it. You practice psychiatry. I practice medicine. You're telling me what I practice. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. Me what I practice. Like, I don't practice psych. like, what is psychiatry? I practice medicine. Right. So, you know, that to me was just very, and I would love for people to keep criticizing this. I, I love it when Garth Davis says that now, because I just think, wow, that just makes him look very petty, very, you know, pompous, and it's a clear appeal to authority. This is what it, James Wilkes was doing on it, Joe Rogan. It's super important because it's this appeal to authority that, that really get, it, it doesn't allow new information to come through. That's it, the key, right? And then the next thing they said on the doctors was, show us the studies on the carnivore diet, right. which as we talked about before, that limits the progress of medicine. Like, where are the studies on, you know, 30 years ago, where are the studies on any diet? Um, and there have been studies on a carnivore diet. So, you know, I talked about the studies that were done with a carnivore diet and they just poo-pooed them. They said, oh, that study was done in 1930 and it was done with two people. And it was a very uh, small study, but it was very detailed. It was right. a study at Bellevue Hospital with Philip right. Stephenson and Anderson, and they were monitored very carefully. And Joel Kahn who won't come on my podcast to have any civil conversation, you know, said that was done in 1930. They didn't even know what HSCRP was, which is just such an underhanded, silly comment. They knew how to take blood pressure. They did blood work. They did, you know, they did uh, weights. They did uh, all of these metrics that were pretty darn reasonable, you know, like, sure, our blood work is more sophisticated now, but they could look at these people and say, you're not having scurvy, your blood pressure is not changing, your kidneys still work just fine. Like, what are your criticisms of a carnivore diet? And so they're saying, where are your studies? Where are the studies that you think should be done on this diet or that have been done on this diet? And again, they're just kind of pulling the rug out from under me. My good friend, Tommy Wood made the great point after the episode, there really are not good long-term studies of any diet. I would challenge people to show me long-term studies of vegan diets or long-term studies of ketogenic diets or long-term studies of Mediterranean diets. Like we don't have long-term studies of any diet. There's no diet that has been studied for five years or 10 years or 20 years. There's no diet, right? Right. I don't know what they want. A six month study with 30 people on a carnivore diet. And, you know, I tried so hard on this, on the, on the episode to say, what are your concerns about this? Theoretically, if someone were going to eat this diet, what do you think might happen? Because as you said, to just say there are no long-term studies on this diet, therefore it is not safe, well, then medicine doesn't progress, right? Always do what you've always done. You know, they're, they're assuming or they're suggesting that they have all the answers. They know how to fix all these things. When in fact, as Ashley and Sarah, who came on this episode with me, illustrate their rheumatoid symptoms, which were really lupus-like, they're, they're Autoimmune symptoms did not get better on a plant-based ketogenic diet. They did right. not get better on other diets. And then they got better when they cut out plants. So how do you explain that? You yep. know? And again, the other side of the argument, people will say, oh, it's all anecdote. And I'm like, okay, we have thousands of anecdotes. Give us a couple of years. We're going to do some studies. In the meantime, should people suffer? Or yeah. you know, now when you have thousands of anecdotes, it's time to say, okay, there are published case reports 
There are thousands of anecdotes. Let's investigate this. We can't just sweep it under the rug and say it's not safe. And the third thing they did, which I think was um, very frustrating, was they employed epidemiology to suggest that eating meat long-term would increase the risk of cancer. And right, they're, they're going to the, you know, Melina Jampolis is yelling at me in the beginning saying, these poor girls, I think they're going to get colon cancer. Right. And, you know, in the next sentence, she will say, no one is saying meat is bad for I you. I was just going to bring that up. I was not, so my thought that went through my head was, so are you saying that your plants, meat is fine as long as you eat it with plants, which are going to protect you from the cancer of the colons? I mean, it, her argument made no sense. It made no sense. But because there were six people coming at me, no one, they didn't they didn't allow for actual real intellectual debate, right? And I said to her, show me the study, show me the interventional study that shows that meat is bad for you. And she says, no one is saying meat is bad for you. And I said, well- You just said it was gonna give him cancer. You just said it was gonna give him cancer. Like, like I don't even understand. And perhaps the, the most frustrating part of this is that now, you know, vegan news outlets are doing memes and saying carnivore doctor got schooled on the doctors and, you know, the TV show. And, I think anyone that, that watches that and, and says, hurrah, just didn't watch the episode and isn't thinking critically, but uh, that, that to me is, is unfortunate that they're using my experience and re representing it in, yeah. inaccurately. Well, like, for, I thank you for going on the show. Just like uh, Ashley and Sarah Armstrong they were talking about, they were on the show. They also had a write-up in like the Daily Mail, some yeah. journal that kind of painted them in a negative picture. Oh, it's not a journal. It's a tabloid. Tabloid. Yeah. Not, yeah. This is, yeah it's what, but so what I told them, cause they were upset and I was like, you know what, you guys are taking the brunt, like the bad of this, but really you're doing a lot of good because there's that saying that there's all no publicity, all any publicity is good publicity or something like that. Right, right, right. And I think, each time, like, some people might be like, oh, yeah, they're school. They're not the kind of people that are ready to, like, transition or even have an open mind. But people that are watching that with an open mind or reading that, that tabloid with an open mind, they're like, whoa. They, they kind of see through that and be like, maybe there's something there. Because each time like this, I see more and more people piling on to, you know, give it a try. Look, if you hear thousands and thousands of these anecdotal success stories, you think all of us are lying and saying, we're just making this up that this is a great, like, so, I, I mean, basically what I'm trying to say is you've taken, like, you know, a lot of hits. The Armstrong sisters are taking hits. I know Dr. Baker's taking a lot of hits, but I, you guys really are doing a lot of good. Like, because, it, like, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people, you know, doing this diet and seeing great results, so. And I'm, I, I fully admit that we're still learning, right? Yeah. And I'm open to learning, and I like having people on my podcast that are dissenting, and we're advancing the knowledge and trying to move it forward as safely as possible and offer this as a therapeutic intervention. And, and, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this work and to do it. One of the coolest things for me is that a lot of these people that I bring on my podcast who are not of the same opinion as me are using a carnivore diet in their practice. Will Cole Will Cole wrote Ketotarian, which is about plant-based ketogenic diets. If people listen to the podcast I did with Will Cole, he uses a carnivore diet in his practice sometimes. Chris Kresser uses a carnivore diet in his practice. Um, you know, Chris Masterjohn, he said he didn't have any clients that were carnivore, but I know that, that he does now. You know, that there yeah. are people who are almost carnivore or carnivores that want to work with him. And so they're, they're, all of these people are using Michael Ruscio. You know, I did a podcast with him and he, he came on my podcast. He's a well-known GI doc. He's using a carnivore diet in his practice for some people. So it's happening, right? Yeah. And, and more and more, you know, I think a lot more practitioners in the natural health space, in the alternative health space, and sometimes in the mainstream space are saying, 
there's this thing called a carnivore diet and you could try it as an elimination diet. And so it's happening. Yeah. The practitioners are using it and we cannot ignore that. And um, that to me is, is really cool because I want to hear what they experience and I want to be kind of as much of a contributor as I can to advancing that knowledge and helping people understand how to do it. Because as we talked about, if we're going to do a carnivore diet, we should probably do it with some intention and some at least awareness of how our ancestors might have done it rather than just eating spam all day. Yeah, I agree. And I see, so I do pediatric dentistry twice a week and it's usually in rural areas, low income areas. Uh, but any meat in their diet is better than what they're doing. Like in these poor communities, they, yeah. they, they don't eat meat. They eat, they eat junk. Like they're not eating just like, like fruits and vegetables either. Like they're on junk based diets sure. and they think, you know, the cereal that they're eating for breakfast is a health food. And they think their peanut butter and jelly for lunch is a health food. And they think that their pasta for dinner, spaghetti for dinner is a health food. And I see these kids twice a week, their teeth are all rotting out of their mouths and they're all on all kinds of ADHD medications. Like I, like, and I, I see elementary school kids and I am, I'm still blown away every single day at work that I'm like, I need your parents to be here to tell you, like, we need nutritional education. And I just think a big part of the problem is that there is a huge divide in education as far as health education, like what people think is healthy and what actually has nutrients that people, kids need to grow and thrive. We are not even close. So like, I emphasize just like, let's get more meat into the diet for the kids. Let's cut back on the sugar and get more meat into the diet. At least we'll be moving in the right direction. Uh, because like, look, teeth riding out of your head when you're like, you get your six-year-old molars when you're six years old and I'm pulling out these, these uh, molars when they're seven. Like your teeth aren't supposed to rot out the first year that you have them, right? Like that's not normal. So like it's, it's important work that you're doing for sure. And part of the work is this exoneration of meat. There is a big I think that might be the biggest. There is a big movement now to demonize animal foods from a, an environmental perspective and from a nutritional perspective. And so the carnivore diet is really at the cutting edge and the forefront of saying, hey, no, we want you to eat all meat. And if you don't want to eat all meat, know that plants have toxins, but at least know that meat is not harmful to humans. No right. way. And it's not harmful to the environment either, which is a completely biased misinformed narrative as well. So that, that is probably part of the crusade because look, if I had to choose between someone eliminating plants and adding meat, I would say you better add meat, right? Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. Put more nutrition in your diet and, yep. and then the second step would be remove the plants. So the first step, realize that meat is super nutritional and I'm talking meat and organs, but most people aren't going to go to the organs just right off the bat, but realize that meat is super valuable. And second step is go and realize that plants have a toxicity spectrum and I talk about that in my book as well, yeah. which plants are more toxic than toxic. So we're, we're getting, we're after over an hour time, but there was two things that I wanted to talk about. One is your book, but the other one is, we talked about it a year ago. I just wanted to like go come full circle. I got my lab results and then I was on your podcast and we're talking, I was like, one lab result kind of caught me off guard. My ferritin was high. Uh, and you since have also had a higher ferritin. I, so I took, test my ferritin. It was high. I don't remember. It was like 500 something. That's high. high. Yeah. Mine was never that high. Yeah. I retested it like six months later and it was 700 something. I was like, whoa. So then I did the genetic test. I did, I held off on that because it was like 500 something bucks. And I was like, all right, but I do have a HFE uh, genetic mod, uh, gene mutation. That's so, important to know. Yeah. But 
I don't know. So what's your update with ferritin? Because I know other people have, have, have seen this as well. So you don't have to spend 500 bucks for the genetic mutation. You can just get 23andMe will tell you. That, that's a saliva one. So I did, I did the blood. Uh, they, yeah. they took blood. Yeah. I mean, that's more accurate. 23andMe right. can have mistakes, but people can do a $99 test and do you know, 23andMe, which is a gene check. Right. Yep. And it'll tell you if you have HFE, which is C282Y or yeah. uh, H63D. Mine's which H63D. Okay. And, you know, so I think that when that's just something to be aware of, that for people, if they have this polymorphism, it's time to do phlebotomy and to track your labs and to watch. A ferritin of 700, I think 99.99, probably 100% of people are going to say, yeah, that's too high. Yeah. Mine, mine never went above 280. Um, but I, you know, I was just experimenting and I thought, oh, it's 280. Maybe I'm just going to get some phlebotomy. I probably didn't need it. One of, um, one of the things I've seen is that so a lot of people will have their ferritin go up and then it'll kind of level out. Yeah. So, and it, it, sometimes it'll level up bet out between two and 300. I, um, and so I'm comfortable generally with a ferritin between two and 300, but in the clients and people I work with, if it goes much above 300 or 400, I'm thinking, yeah, I just do phlebotomy See, a few times a year. Ferritin is one of those things <laughs> where in the absence of inflammation, because ferritin is generally elevated in people that have some underlying inflammatory sure. and it's a response. So all these studies I read, they're like, high ferritin is linked with these bad things. I'm like, well, yeah, because it's a response to a chronic inflammatory issue right. that's going on. So yeah, it makes sense. But is slightly elevated ferritin in the absence of one of these underlying inflammatory responses, is that actually bad? It like, depends how you define slightly elevated. You know, it depends, right, right, it sure. depends what the cutoff is, you know, and most labs have different ferritin ranges. You can do one lab, they say the upper end of ferritin is 150. Another lab will say 300. 100, yep, yep. 300. Yep. So, you know, I generally not use- Not 700, yeah, yeah. Not 700. <laughs> I, I, generally use, I generally use 300 as the cutoff or even 250 and, yeah. you know, kind of track it over time. If somebody does ferritin and it kind of goes, and it kind of levels out, that's probably okay. Yeah. And the reason we would be concerned about it would be oxidative stress. So if people really wanted to get granular, you could measure things like F2 isoprostane, the creatinine yep. ratio- or malandialdehyde, or 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, or lipid peroxides. And I think these oxidative stress markers should become more mainstream. I hope they do, yeah. because they really give us a sense. like What's actually going on here? Yeah, what's actually going on. And, um, and the, other, the other test people can look at, and I did a whole part of a podcast on an AMA podcast that's on my podcast, which we said is fundamental. I, li I listened to it because, uh, yeah, yeah. it was my ferritin. <clears throat> you can also triangulate that with your transferrin saturation. So yep. what was your transferrin sat? You know uh, it was like almost 50%. Yeah. So once you start, it was like 49%, high, I think. Yeah. Or, once you're up in that range, like a 49, I've seen a transfer and sat as high as 71 in somebody that has full blown hemochromatosis. Chromatosis, which is, yeah. Yeah. C282Y. Um, <clears throat> but uh, a high transfer and sat in the setting of an elevated ferritin does suggest you're just holding on to a lot of iron. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm in the midst of just continuing. I do all these self-experimentations all the time. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, So I'm, I'm giving blood every eight to ten weeks. I'm going to do six phlebotomies and then probably retest it and see what, see what the numbers look like. Right. It's but that was actually one reason I was going to tell you. So I, there's one reason I started eating less liver because liver was the one organ I would eat pretty regularly. Uh -huh. And I was like, with the iron, like – because liver's real high in iron, you absorb it like crazy. I probably absorb it even more like crazy. I was like, yeah. maybe I need to, you know, watch it on some of the organs that are, are higher in iron. Higher in iron. Hey, I would say the 
the way to do it would be eat the liver for all the other nutrients and just keep doing the phlebotomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as the phlebotomy, as long as the phlebotomy <laughs> keeps up with, you know, I don't want to give blood every month. Uh, I mean, I had, that's actually therapeutic phlebotomy. Right now I'm just doing it. You can give, you can give every eight weeks without a prescription. Yeah, yeah. So that's basically what I'm doing. That's probably fine. I bet it'll go down quite a bit. Yeah. 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 All right. So let's talk about the book. Let's wrap it up because I'm excited to read it. Uh, can you give me like a, a like, first of all, from like a marketing standpoint, who's it targeted to? Is it targeted to the everyday person that's out there or more of someone that's more health inclined? Because I know you're a science guy. Uh, and you like going to the, you're like me. I like going to the details right, of the science. Right. So how much, yeah. how much of that's in it? How much of it is, uh, you know, yeah. But what, how, how detailed? It's both. It's both. Yeah, it is so both. I was, yeah, I was showing you here. I've got it. You know, it, that's the cover for people to see. It's, it's a nice uh, cover, by the way. Yeah, thank you. It's 650 Good. references. It's about 300 pages um, with a good amount of frequently asked questions at the back. And so lots of references. But it's, it's, a, it's built for both. And it's my first book, so it was a real learning experience. Super fun. But I, I, I wrote it to be accessible to everyone and to have enough science that people who want to go deeper can do it. So it's targeted to everyone. I knew that writing a book about the carnivore diet, it was going to be super controversial and I could not write a, a high level carnivore book. I wanted to write a granular carnivore book, but at the same time, I think it's very readable. I'm recording the audio book this week and I wanted it to be accessible to everyone um, in that sense. So it's probably, it's both. It's for everybody. It's going to have enough. It's going to have plenty of detail for people who want to dig down. Yeah. And there's a lot of high level stuff and, there's a ton, there's probably 40 pages about how to eat a carnivore diet and all this other kind of stuff. Because it's hard, it's easy, because I've done a good amount of writing, it's easy to turn what would be in my head like a, a blog post that turns into like 50 pages. And that's something I struggle with. What do you, do you cover like, what, what, what topics do you cover? I mean, it's impossible to cover everything, right? Because I'm sure that's like the tendency. You're like, I want to write about this. I want to write about this. I want to write about this. Discuss yeah. all these, like all these things we're talking about right now. There's no way all of that can make it in there. No, uh, it's so, pretty comprehensive. So people can go to my website, which is carnivoremd.com. Yep. And under the, under the media tab is a, a, a tab for my book. And you can see the table of contents, which is what I, what I wrote about. You can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com to order it. But the first section of the book is anthropology and evolution. There's two chapters about human evolution. The next four Very chapters, necessary. The yeah, scientist the next, said nothing makes sense except for the light of evolution. I and think I, so. I always so, remember that quote. <laughs> yeah. So the first two chapters are all evolutionary stuff. The next four chapters are about specific plant toxins. I talk about isothiocyanates, polyphenols, lectins, and oxalates. The, the third section of the book, chapter eight, is about... Um, Chapter eight is about a comparison of animal versus plant nutrient adequacy and specific nutrients that are found only in animal foods. That would be huge. Yeah, chapter nine, 10, and 11. Chapters eight, nine, 10, and 11 are about debunking myths. So the myth I debunk in chapter eight is that plant foods are superfoods. Chapter nine, I debunk the myth that, um, that meat will give us cancer. Chapter 10 is that meat is going to shorten our lives. Um, or, you know, affect right. the microbiome negatively. And then chapter 11 is that meat will cause heart disease. And I talk all about cholesterol. So I go into all, that's the exoneration of meat, cancer, right. nutrients, heart disease, microbiome, GI stuff, all that. Chapter 12 is all about how to eat a carnivore diet. It's the longest chapter in the book. And I go through five tiers of a carnivore diet in my perspective, how to, how to construct a carnivore diet. Chapter 13 is pitfalls. And then chapter 14 is kind of about ethics and the environment. So how big is that last chapter? 
What's that? How big is that last chapter? It's about uh, 4,000 words, so maybe 10 pages. Yeah. The last 18 to 24 months, it's what I've, I've, I've been studying and researching environmental issues. Yeah. And right now I'm working on studying the other side. Uh, I like to study the other side, the other person's argument. So I'm like, okay, I understand like the meat argument, the meat-based argument. What about, what about these people that are all saying we need to eat grains and whatnot? So I'm trying to understand the other side of the argument right. now. Uh, the reason I ask how long is it is, my goodness, it is a complex topic. Uh, it is a complex topic. And so it's, it's, I go into it in a little bit of detail. It's not as detailed as, it, as I could write about. I think I'm going to write I mean, a second, it, could be, it could be an yeah. encyclopedia on its own. Well, but. I think I'm going to write a second book about regenerative agriculture. So I think that's the next book is a regenerative agriculture book. I mean, the takeaways from that chapter are that, you know, um, that for me, the ultimate arbiter of human continuation on this planet, Homo sapiens, will be the amount of organic matter in the soil. And when we, when we till the soil, we are releasing carbon into the atmosphere, which is never talked about by plant-based circles. When we till the soil, yep. and, we are, and the, the organic matter in the soil is oxidized when we destroy the soil, when we till it. So soil health is everything. And this makes sense, right? It's for it kids. is. Everything it's comes a, out of the soil. <laughs> everything comes out of the soil. It's a Native American concept. We belong to the land. And if we destroy the earth, we will die. And so what monocrop agriculture does, and this is not debatable, is destroy the earth by decreasing the amount of organic matter in the soil and by increasing the amount of carbon that is released directly from the ground. Exactly. And if we look at the plains in the United States, there were hundreds of millions of buffalo, elk, pronghorn, antelope, and deer that were grazing and moving around and peeing and pooping and adding organic matter. And they made some of the most fertile soil on earth yep. that we then destroyed over the last few hundred years by farming, right? Yep. That's why yep. it's called America's heartland is because all of that grassland that was made into grassland that was very fertile by ruminants yep. was then turned into factory farms while farming. And over the last 100, 150 years, we have then depleted all that soil of the nutrients because we took ruminants off the land. Well, there are lots of farms like White Oak Pastures, Belcampo, now doing rotational grazing where they return organic matter to the land. In life cycle analyses, they're shown to be carbon negative. It's this incontrovertible argument to return to an ecosystems-based approach to animal farming. Animals are not contributing to greenhouse gas emissions in a way that changes client, climate. It's, that's absolutely absurd. And it's completely myopic. And there are lots of rabbit holes to go down. I strongly believe because of these reasons and many more that I talk about in the book that animals, that ruminant animals raised properly are the only hope we have of continuing as a species on this planet. We are, we, the soil is not going to be able to grow things for much longer. We are already pumping the soil for, full of fake fertilizers. Yep. We, and, and the soil organic matter is going down. For every 1% organic matter increase in the soil, a hectare of land can hold, I think it's about 25,000 gallons more water. Well, what happens when the organic matter is depleted in the heartland in anywhere in the world because we're monocrop farming it? Water comes in, soil erodes. Topsoil yep. runs off into lakes and streams, chokes aquar you know, aquatic ecosystems, and things die. If the topsoil runs off, we are dead. Yep. You know? So it's just we need mycorrhizal fungal networks in the ground, and that is ecosystems, and that requires animals. So, and and the, if we look at the methane that's coming from cows – it's part of the carbon cycle. It always has been. The biggest methane producer is termites. So, you know, Greta, exactly. Thunberg, Greta Thunberg needs to campaign against termites, yeah. you know, or, yep. you know, wetlands. You know, wetlands produce a lot of methane. Natural wetlands, should we pave the wetlands? 
Like it's so silly. Like you can look at the amount of methane that comes from cows and a larger amount comes from termites. So we should develop, we should develop a virus that kills all the termites. That's clearly the answer, right? Yeah. That would cause complete ecosystems collapse, just like removing all ruminants from the planet would. Uh, and then, you know, we should pave the wetlands because the wetlands are belching, you know? Well, right, exactly. It's so silly. It's like, what are you guys talking about? Can't you see that, that the new carbon going into the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels is the problem? It's not cows. You know what's crazy is when you suggest a natural what seems like common sense solution is so like uncommon. You're like, oh, have the animals that has always been here graze the lands versus, oh, let's take machines and till all the lands, you know, like, okay, which one is like, like if you look at it, just, it should be like, it almost seems like common sense, but it seems like a radical concept when you say it. It's, isn't it isn't it crazy that and so does the carnivore diet like exactly this radical diet that we've eaten for millions of years yeah this radical diet that more or less has been the way that humans have probably been eating like do we really think humans have been eating lots of plant foods i mean that's debatable blah 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 but you know let's just take the meat issue and then we'll wrap up like why is meat bad for us again? We've been eating it for 3 million years, 4 million years. You know, it was at the center of our evolution. Like, exactly. That's a radical concept now. Meat is bad for us. That's crazy. That's a radical concept. Graze animals like they have for the last, you know, I don't even know how long bison or right, bison-like exactly. things have been evolved on this earth. You know, certainly hundreds of thousands of years that bison right. have been in existence as a species. Um, so that's great. That's just, I mean, that's what's so cool about the carnivore diet. It's a wake-up call. And people can't handle it. Yep. Well, Paul, this has been great. I appreciate all the time. I'm looking forward to the book a lot. It's great catching up. We'll have to do it again soon. Maybe not wait a whole year. When you're in Costa Rica, we'll catch up. I love it, man. I love it. So, Well, thank you for all you do as well. Because I know you've gone through a lot, a lot of stress. Uh, And it's good. I think think it'll help others, you know, because, you know, you have a big platform. But everyone deals with this online bullying. And it is an issue. And so I, I don't think it's just you or just me. I think it is a lot of us and, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we can get better dealing with this. I'm not saying that's going to go away, but coping strategies. Yeah. We get stronger, man. We get stronger. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. So people should please check out my website, carnivoremd.com, the book, the carnivore code book.com. MD on Instagram, on Twitter. Fundamental health podcast. Fundamental Thank health you. podcast. Awesome. Got it. See you, Paul. Thanks brother. Whoops. the radio going dr kevin stock has more coming your way for exclusive content visit www.kevinstock.io